Trinity Baptist Church. Once, I was very blessed by the Lord with all of the ways the world can provide. I was thankful to the Lord for all the life that he had blessed me with, but I took tremendous pride in what I had done to achieve these rewards. Then Jesus found me. He made me recognize that I could not truly have a relationship with him and a love of my other idols, idols of ambition, success, and worldly security. So he crushed my idols, and he made me choose, walk away from worldly success in order to keep what is holy to Jesus and family. Like my brothers Job and Daniel, he sent me out to the desert to teach me the greater gifts of humility and patience. So I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit and out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song into my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will now see and fear and put their trust in God. Today, I am poorer in wealth, but I'm richer in spirit and love. My name is Julianne, and I am new. This is a reading from Nehemiah chapter 12, several verses. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophites, from Beth Galal, and from the area of Geba and Asmaveth. For the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremoniously, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go up to the top of the wall. I assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed to the top of the wall to the right, towards the dung gate. Hosiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them, as well as priests with trumpets. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the city's steps of the city of David on the ascent of the wall and passed above the David's palace to the water gate to the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half the people, past the tower of the ovens of the broad wall, over the gate of Ephraim, the Janah gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Sheep Gate, at the Gate of the Guard, they stopped. The two choirs gave thanks, then took their places in the house of God. So did I with half the officials. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Julianne. So I went to seminary um, 
just outside of Boston and was there from 1984 to 87. And if you are, were a sports fan, it was a great time to be living in the Boston area. Because in, in 1986, the, um, the Patriots went to the Super Bowl, the Celtics won the national uh, championship in basketball, and the Red Sox went to the World Series. So it was pretty extraordinary that all three of these teams would make it to the pinnacle of their sport in the same, in the same year. Um, the run that was most um, exciting to me was that of the Red Sox. Now, I know this is Yankees land, and, and they're the, the evil nation to the north. I get that. But the, um, the Red Sox were pl- playing in the American League Championship Series against the California Angels, and the, the series was, the Angels were up 3-1. to one. They were out in Anaheim. And, and it was the bottom of the ninth inning. Red Sox are down by a run. It's 4-5. It's to five. And the Angels have their closer, Donnie Moore, on the mound. All right? And Donnie had had this great season. He's in there, and he hits the first two batters out. The third guy gets on base, and then Hondo Henderson comes to the plate. Anybody remember Hondo? Come on. <laughs> Bill does. Anyway, so Hondo comes, and, and they're battling, you know, and, and Donnie's making some good pitches, and it's, the count's two and two, and then Donnie makes a terrible pitch out over the plate. Hondo hits it out of the park. Um, Red Sox go up 6-5. Well, the Angels come back and, and score a run in the bottom of the ninth, but Moore stays in the, in the game, and he ends up giving up a run in the 11th, and the Angels lose. Now, they were one pitch away from going to the World Series, but the Red Sox go on to win the series and go to the World Series, and the California media and fan base crucified Donnie Moore for one pitch. That pitch to Hondo Henderson. For the next two years, every time Moore stepped foot on the field, they booed him. And in 1989, Donnie Moore committed suicide. Go back to the, to the Red Sox. So the Red Sox win that series. They go to the World Series and play the Mets. Remember that? Seventh game of the World Series. Two outs. The, the Red Sox are one out away from being world champions. And there's uh, runners on second and third. And there's a slow roller hit to first base. And, and one of the best first basemen that the Red Sox ever had, Bill Buckner. Remember what happened? Ball goes through his legs. Two runs score. Mets win, Red Sox lose. (laughs) And the Boston fans would not let Bill Buckner forget that error. And for the next season or so, I can't remember how long he stayed, but they booed him. And and he got hate mail, and he got all kinds of stuff. He he ended up retiring from baseball and moving... um, to Boise, Idaho, where he lived in seclusion. 
One bad pitch, one error. It's baseball. But it ruined a couple of people's lives. One took his own life. See, in our culture, we don't, we don't do failure very well. We don't let people fail very well. Um, have you been there? Sin to get somebody, done, let somebody down, done something wrong, and they just hold it against you. They just keep throwing it in your face, throwing it in your face. Aren't you glad God doesn't do that? Friends, we have a God who, who gives second chances. And that's what Nehemiah 12 is all about. The nation of Israel, since the time of David, has been in rebellion. For 500 years, they've been wandering from God. This is not a bad pitch. This is not a ball between the legs. This is 500 years of rebellion. And now they come back, and there's, they spend four months rededicating themselves. Is God going to take them back? You bet he does. You bet he does. You see, the Bible tells us that as high as the heavens are from the earth, so high is God's mercy for those who fear him for those who love him. The Bible says that his mercies are new every morning. Aren't you glad? The Bible says that that God remembers our sin no more. God is a God of second chances. And I I can't tell you how many times over the 23 years that I've been um, at this church, people have come to me and asked, will God take me back? Singles who have fallen um, morally, um, spouses who have been unfaithful to their mate, um, men and women who have lived, you know, unholy, reckless lives in the workplace and, and have brought reproach on the name of God. People come and they say, will God forgive me? Will God take me back? And I say, yes, he will. Because our God is a God of second chances. That's what we see in, Roman, or in Nehemiah chapter 12, if you want to turn there. In verse, uh, verses 27 to 43 of this chapter, we see this nation coming back to God in celebration and dedication. In verse 27, it says, At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Make a note, even after 500 years of rebellion, you can come back to God. You can still come back. What is dedication? Well, by definition, a dedication is to set apart um, for a deity for a special use, to commit oneself to a particular course of thought or action. That's what a dedication is. It's not just a ceremony. It is the setting apart for a specific use. When parents bring their children up here to be dedicated, um, what they're saying is, we're setting our child apart for God's purposes. And we're committing ourselves to, to raising this 
um, this child according to the constraints and direction of the scriptures. And that's what these folks are doing in Jerusalem with the wall. Essentially, they're dedicating the wall. They're, they're setting the city apart for God's purposes. Um, and, they're, and they're saying, God, we want to start anew. We want to start fresh. In verse 30, it says, when the priests and the Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. In other words, they consecrated themselves. They cleansed themselves, and they set, uh, they set themselves apart, and they, they said, our past is behind us. We're moving forward. Remember what 1 John 1, 9 says? If we confess our sins, God is what? Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You see, if we will come as, as these folks are coming, God is faithful and just to forgive us and will cleanse us. God said through Isaiah, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. You know, God knows everything, but there's one thing he forgets. That's our sin. Isn't that awesome? When we come to him and we confess it, um, you know, the psalmist says that he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? (laughs) It's forever far. It's forever far. So with this dedication and consecration, does God take them back? You bet he does. You see, our God is a God of second chances. He's not Red Sox fans, and he's not Angels fans. He forgives, and he gives second chances. And Israel experiences God's forgiveness, and so we see in verses 31 and following, there's this adoration that takes place. It says, I had leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. These leaders were representatives of all the people. I also signed two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate. And then if you go down to verse 38, the second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half of the people. Do you see what Nehemiah is doing? He's got these two choirs going up, and, and the wall was wide enough for, for people to walk three abreast. And he's got these two choirs going up with the leaders going up, and they're walking around the wall. Why would he do that? Remember chapter 2 when he rode around the city, and he, gave, and he was kind of surveying the, the status of the wall? Some portions of it were so broken down, his horse couldn't even get through. So why is he having them walk around on top? So that they can see that it's done. What was broken has been restored. And they get to to go and they get to survey this and go, this is awesome. They get to see it. And then it says in verse 43, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. I love that. They're taking a victory lap. 
on the wall. And it's not a victory lap saying, look what we did. It's a victory lap saying, look what God has done. And there was so much rejoicing that, that the sound of that could be heard who knows how far away. Friends, when you make a commitment to God and you do, do so through dedication and consecration and adoration, you know what the result is in your life? Joyful celebration. In verse 27, it says that they came together in Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully. And they did it with instruments. And in, in 28, we see singers. Why, why was there such celebration? Because they had been given a second chance. Yeah, we've been in rebellion for 500 years, but God has taken us back. And now everything is according to the way it's supposed to be. Friends, God will take you back. God will take you back. If you're David and you're guilty of adultery and murder and you come and you confess, God will take you back. If you're Peter and you deny the Lord three times in his most desperate moment, if you come back, God will say, feed my sheep. He'll take you back. Friends, our God is a God of second chances. And I don't know about you, but I am so thankful he is. I am so thankful that he is. Because, you know, I don't know how many times I've let him down. I don't know how many times I have, you know, just been rebellious or, or, or been passively indifferent. But whenever I've come back, God says, come on home. I'll take you back. So we've got this Jewish revival meeting taking place. They come back to God and God takes them back. And there's this great deal of emotion going on. It's a great celebration. But they can't stay there. Uh, remember when Peter went with Jesus and James and John and they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and, and they see Jesus, you know, in his glory and they've got Elijah and Moses is there. Remember what Peter says, one of the great understatements of the Bible? It is good that we are here. <laughs> yeah, you think? And then Peter, Peter wants to stay there. He says, let's just build three tabernacles and hang out. This is awesome. Remember what Jesus says? No, we can't stay on the mountain. We got to go back down to the real world. And friends, that's what's happening here. In verses 44 to 47, they have to come down off the, the emotional high of the celebration and step back into the reality of life. Verse 44, at that time, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the contributions, first fruits, and tithes. From the fields around the towns, they were um, to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites, for Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. You see, Nehemiah understood that if they didn't, if, if they didn't 
um, give of their tithes, if they didn't give of their 10% to keep the temple going and to keep the priests doing their job of teaching the word, their rededication and celebration really was meaningless. You see, we've got to live our lives in the reality of the day-to-day. Um, in February, I, I had the privilege to marry Jed and Becky sitting back there. Um, and it was a great celebration. And it was just really, Jed had a suit on, and Jed never wears a suit, so he's, he was looking good. Um, Becky looked beautiful in her wedding dress, and, and they come up here, and they're standing just right here. Right up here on the altar, you know, and and they're making these wonderful commitments to each other. You know, I'm going to love you, I'm going to honor you, and I'm going to cherish you until I'm dead. And then the other one, you know, I'm going to I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to be faithful to you until I'm dead. You know, and 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 they're making these wonderful commitments, and then they, you know, they kiss, and that's very cool, and everybody cheers, and it's a great celebration, and, and, and I pronounce them husband and wife. I think I pronounced them, and then they kiss. I don't remember, but then they, you know, we said some prayers over them, and they light a candle, and, and then, and it was all just great, wonderful celebration, but then the piano started playing, and they had to walk out that aisle. They couldn't stay up here. They had to live their commitment out there. And so within a few weeks, when Jed, you know, ticked Becky off because he threw his underwear in the sink or something like that, you know, she emailed me. Um, She had to deal with that, and she will have to deal with that until she's dead. <laughs> and then when Becky got mad at Jed because Jed didn't read her mind, <laughs> right, guys? Right? Amen? He's going to have to deal with that until he's dead. You see, you can't live your commitment on the altar. The celebration's great, and you say it, and it's great, and, and there's, you know, wonderful stuff. But you got to live it out there. And that's what Nehemiah is telling these folks. He's saying we can't just keep marching around the wall. Can't just keep singing and playing musical instruments, and that's all great, and God's taken us back, and we've got a second chance, but now we've got to do something with our second chance. We've got to live it out. Verse 47, so in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all of Israel contributed the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers. They also set aside the portions for the other Levites, and the Levites set aside the portion for the descendants of Aaron. See what happened? They followed through. They did it. They, they stepped into their commitment and began to live it out. Isn't that the biggest struggle with the Christian life? Living it out. 
we tend to to move in great emotional surges. We come to church and go to a retreat and we cry and we sing and it's our, we raise our hands and it's really great. But then we leave and nothing really changes. Eight weeks ago, I asked everybody who wanted to step into the extraordinary life that God has for them to stand and, and just about everybody in this room stood up. Yes, I want to be extraordinary. But as I asked last week, what has changed in the last eight weeks? What's different? We can all have that, that emotional, yeah, I want, to, I want to be extraordinary. I want to live the extraordinary life. Yeah. But then we got to go do something about it. We got to go to the leadership summit and get better. We got to live up to our commitment to help build the wall in Rwanda, which, by the way, we're lagging way behind in, in our efforts to, to raise the funds there. We got to actually do it. We've been given a second chance. Yeah! What are you going to do with it? We got to live it. So, how do you do that? Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. Do you see what they did? They went back to the Bible. They start anew in the scriptures. The way that we stay true to our commitments as we stay true to the Bible. What'd they find? It says, on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Now, just make sure you understand what's going on here. This is not God telling them to be racist. Okay? God's point, the bane of Israel throughout their existence was that they allowed foreign influence into their life and it caused them to turn away from the true God and worship foreign gods. That's what happened over and over and over and over. And that's why God had said early on, I want you to to separate yourself so that you can be a, a, a light on a hill. So that people can see that your God is different, so that people can see that you're different. And if you want to read all the reasons why, it's in Numbers 23 to 25, and you can read that for yourself sometime. So God's not calling them to be racist. He's calling them to be pure. And so what these folks do is they go back. The nation has an act of dedication. God takes them back. They establish these daily principles of devotion and commitment to him. And then in in desiring to stay true to him, they go back to his word 
they find the root cause that has that has brought sin and and destruction into their uh, nation for centuries, and they deal with it. When I was with Young Life, um, every year I would take a group of 10 or 12 high school kids backpacking in the Rocky Mountains. And so for, for seven days, these high school kids would carry 35 plus pounds on their back up and down mountain trails. They would sleep on the ground. They um, would eat trail mix and ramen noodles. They would sweat like crazy during the day and they would freeze at night. Um, In the mornings, we would do Bible study and then we would have a verse of the day that, that they would work to memorize all through the day as they're hiking the trail. And around every meal, somebody would tell their, give their life story. And then in the evenings, we would, we would kind of go back through the study of the day and the verse of the day, and we'd think it all through. And how many of you think that's cruel and unusual punishment for high school students? <laughs> so we'd get to the end of this week, and I would ask them, for how many of you has this been the greatest week of your life? And with only a a few exceptions, all of the kids would say, this has been awesome. It's been the greatest week of my life. And I'd say, well, why is that? You've been sleeping on the ground. You've had, you know, you've had no TV, no, you know, they didn't have iTunes at the time, but, you know, no music. You know, no hot showers. You've been, you know, walking. And and all you've been doing is you've been, you know, reading the scriptures and memorizing the scriptures and talking to people and sharing your life. Why do you think this has been the greatest week of your life? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I said, I'll tell you why. Because you've been living in the will of God. Because you've been living life the way God wants you to live life. Wow. But then I'd say, you know what? But we can't stay up on the mountain. Can't stay at the altar. Can't stay on top of the wall. We got to go back down. And we have to learn to live what we've been experiencing up here for the last seven days. We've got to learn to live that down there. Friends, that's what this text is all about. It's about the joy of the second chance. It's about understanding that when I come back to God and I dedicate myself to God, um, there's great celebration there. There's great joy there. It's a wonderful thing to know that his mercies are new every morning and that I can come back to him whenever I fail. That God is not going to boo me when I step on the field. That God is going to cheer for me and and welcome me home. We can run into his arms, as we sang earlier, because his arms are open. That's 
awesome. But friends, we got to do something with that chance. You can't live in the emotion of it. If you want to step into the extraordinary life, you take the second chances that God gives you and you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be faithful with it. I'm going to look at the scriptures and I'm going to find out where I messed up and I'm going to get it right this time. And I'm going to step into that fulfilling, that joyful life that he's called me to. Friends, celebrate with reckless abandon the the grace of God, the fact that he welcomes you back. Celebrate that so loud that people can hear you from far off. But you can't stay in that place of emotional celebration. You have to then start living out the commitment. You got to do something. God's going to give you a second chance. The choice then is, will you use it? Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm so grateful for all of the chances that you have graciously extended to me. And I know, Lord, that all of us here have come to you and come to you and come to you and ask for forgiveness. And we've, we've dedicated and rededicated and consecrated and, and done all of those things. But Lord, I pray that you will help us to be people that don't just stand up and say, yes, I want to be extraordinary. But that we will then do the things that your scriptures call us to that will then help us to step into that life. That we'll live it. That we'll live the commitment that we make. Pray this for your name's sake. Amen.